So we begin a new talk today. This is still within the chapter Practicing Dharma, and this talk is called Morality Brings Happiness, a talk given on Sankran, the traditional new year. So it starts off with a quotation of the verse that we recite after the um, ceremony of determining the, the five precepts. Morality is the vehicle for happiness. Morality is wealth and treasure. Morality is the vehicle for dispassion. Thus may morality, may, thus may morality be purified. Silena sugatinyanti, silena poka sampata, silena niputinyanti, tasama silangmi sotaye. Is the Pali for that? And uh, Songkran is the. Um, it's the one solar festival in the traditional Buddhist year, and you find it throughout South Asia, uh, in Buddhist countries, also in um, in India generally, um, and it's co- connected with um, the uh, uh, being the hot season, and it's also uh, connected to the Indian goddess Saraswati, and it's a a water festival, so that uh, it's seemingly uh, related to. The idea of bringing and uh, spreading water around, um, or inv- invoking the, the monsoon to uh, to be coming uh, in the middle of the hot, dry season, because there's been no rain for quite some time in most of South Asia. Uh, so it's usually uh, about April 12th, April 13th, um, and so that you find that in in India, Sri Lanka, you know, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, and Myanmar, and so. It's a sort of um, secular festival, uh, but it's part of the, uh, the, uh, the, f- the calendar. It's one of our several New Years. <laughs> we have the January the first New Year, and then you have Chinese New Year on the new moon of February, or the end of, end of January. And then we have this um, uh, Songkran, the, the April uh, solar New Year in the hot season, and then the traditional Buddhist uh, year, New Year, which is in the full moon at the end of the rainy season, which is when we change um, the, the technically when the, the calendar changes. So on the Thai calendar, uh, it's now 2566. So the, um, the year changed from 2565 to 66 on the, the day after the full moon of November. So that's the the end of the, the year and the beginning of the new year comes after the rainy season. So we have Four New Years, yeah, any excuse for a festival? <laughs> so the Songkran one, um, and then it, it uh, also involves uh, ritual bathing. So when uh, um, uh, in Northeast Thailand they uh, they they do it you know quite uh, quite uh, abundantly. So you would have uh, a kind of metal chute in the set up in the middle of the monastery, and then the there would be a wooden platform, and then um, the village layman would then wash all of the the the, uh, the monks and novices one by one. You sit on the wooden platform, and you have a bathing cloth around your your waist, and then the the water is poured into the the channel and kind of sprays down all over you, and you get a kind of ritual uh, ritual bathing. Everybody from the from the uh, from the most senior person down to the most junior, and it's uh, it's lots of um, uh, laughter and enjoyment and kind of. Uh, also sprinkling flowers into the water uh, as well. Here we have a much more modest version, just washing the sort of ritual washing of the hands, and um, that can be just sort of poured from a, from a jug or a dish, or 
uh, we um, during the COVID uh, era, <laughs> we developed a sort of a long distance hand washing system with these two nagas, two dragons, so that people could be, still be more than two meters away, pour the water into the into the channel by the dragon, and go down by the the two dragons, and then pour out over my hands or Lumpur Sumato's hands. So it's a kind of COVID-friendly Songkran uh, water pouring. But it's uh, yeah, water is, is generally a central part of it, and I think it goes way back in ancient times of the sort of ritual invocation of the monsoon in a time of heat and dryness, wanting the water to come back. It's also, those of you who've been in Thailand in April have been around the kind of, uh, there's a lot of um, water thrown around on the streets and uh, people with water pistols or buckets or even fire hoses occasionally with uh, the, a lot of water being spread around um, in, uh, with varying degrees of, uh, of religious observance and, <laughs> and just kind of plain uh, having a sort of festive, uh, festive enjoyment. So this is the occasion people have come to Wat Bapong for this uh, Songkran event. We who have come here to seek refuge in the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha today find ourselves in this moment in time which is passing right before our eyes as we sit here. It is as the Buddha taught. Days and nights are relentlessly passing. How well are we spending our time? This is the speech of the Buddha, his very serious admonition to us to watch over ourselves. Still, some Buddhists let the days and nights pass without recollecting what they're doing that day what they've done in the past, or what they'll do on the morrow. It's a mistake to let the time pass without employing mindfulness, to pay attention to whether we're doing good or causing harm, knowing whether our intentions and behavior are good or bad. Yet it is indeed rare to find individuals who think about this and have this kind of sensitivity. Today we've completed another year according to the old calendar. Actually, we don't have to take so much interest in what we have completed, and we don't have to think in terms of Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and so on. We can consider that we're starting from today, whatever the day is. Twelve months make a year, no matter when we start. It disagrees with worldly convention, that's all. So we've come to this season of the year when we meet according to tradition. It's the end of another year in which we've been trying to practice the Dhamma. We will have happiness and harmonious living because of honesty and morality. Living in a group or the larger society, we will experience happiness and well-being because of morality and dharma, the practice of virtue. So this is Lumpur um, uh, encouraging the, 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 the group of people who have come, obviously with a sort of a festive attitude, but uh, he would uh, often gently or, or vigorously <laughs> encourage people like, you, you don't just... Focus on the festivities, but you know, don't don't let your your life pass by needlessly. And those words, uh, the days and nights are relentlessly passing. How well are we spending our time? That's a direct quotation from a, a particular teaching called the the ten subjects for frequent recollection by one who has gone forth. And so that it's a, a series of encouragements, particularly for monastics, but I think is more widely applicable as well. Um, to to say help wake uh, us to wake up and to pay attention that yeah the days and nights are relentlessly passing how well are we spending our time what are we doing with our days how are we uh, say uh, placing our attention and what are we making the priorities uh, in our lives 
And so that can be taken as intimidating uh, or sort of threatening from an authority figure saying, "How? what are you doing with your time? But it's also, uh, uh, I think, helping to, in, to enliven our own uh, sort of natural wisdom. Let's say, well, what am I doing with myself? Well, how am I spending my time? You know, did I spend my Saturday afternoon uh, practicing meditation or did I spend my afternoon at a football match or, or, a, or watching, a, watching a movie? You know, what, what did I do with my day today? And so uh, then encouraging us to, to look and see what are the, the, the results of our actions. And then this, this little verse that is uh, recited at the end of the five precepts, Silena Sugatingyanti, Silena Boga Sampada, Silena Nibutingyanti, Tasma Silangviso Daye. Customarily, whenever the five precepts are, people determine the, the three refuges and the five precepts, that's a little verse that's recited uh, at the end as a, a, an encouragement or a recognition. You know, this, is, this is the effects of Sila. You know, sila is a vehicle for happiness. Uh, um, sila is is wealth and treasure. Boga sampada. So, um, sugati. Sugati is uh, happiness. Boga sampada. Boga is is wealth or or treasure. Uh, sampada means abundance. So, abundant wealth. So, often when when I recite those those words, I say to people when I translate them, I say silena boga sampada. It doesn't mean that you're going to win the lottery. <laughs> or that uh, if you keep the precepts, you're going to be necessarily have a lot of cash, but it, uh, it the the quality of virtue uh, it is a support for that sense of fullness and completeness, a, a sense of of um, richness of heart. So whether um, your good behavior invites um, success in your your business world or your family life or the uh, tilts things in your direction in terms of actual cash returns. That's one thing, <laughs> but more importantly, it's that quality of contentment, that sense of of not being in a state of neediness or having to, to get more things or have more things and never quite having enough. Um, the many uh, years ago, I came across a quotation from um, when John D. Rockefeller was about a hundred years ago. And John D. Rockefeller was the was the richest person in the world at that point, and um, he was the the owner of Standard Oil, and um, he was being interviewed, I think, for the New York Times, and uh, the reporter said, "Mr. Rockefeller, you are the richest man in the world. Um, how much money do you think is enough?" And then he paused for a moment and said, "Just a little bit more." <laughs> so. Uh, I think he both kind of uh, recognized his own appetite, but also there's a, an element of wisdom there, like, you know, I've noticed that it's never quite enough. <laughs> so there was some element of, uh, of reflection there, even uh, in uh, such a wealthy, uh, materialistically focused person. So Silena uh, Nibuti is coolness or, or peacefulness. So Nibbana means, um, uh, is the word for the great peacefulness of liberation. Silena nibuting yanti. So when we live in a, uh, in a when we live in a virtuous way, when we live uh, virtuously, it brings about a coolness of heart, a, a, an ease, uh, a peacefulness. Therefore, let the the morality be purified. So it's pointing out the natural 
uh, and beneficial and beautiful consequences of living in a way that is is harmless, that is honest, that is kind, and um, is uh, say um, sort of directly beneficial to to other beings. The um, one of the uh, one of the teachings I referred to, uh, I mentioned this a few days ago in an earlier chapter. Um, there's a particular teaching in the Book of the Tens, the Numerical Discourses, it's the second sutta, and it's uh, it, the name of it is uh, Liberation is a Natural Process, and it's it spells out how um, if we live in a way which is virtuous, if we are um, say living in in a a manner that's respectful, that's harmless, that's kind, that's, that's honest, then we don't have to think, may I be free from remorse, because it's natural. If you haven't done anything harmful or destructive or deceitful, then your heart will be free from remorse. And then the Buddha goes on to say, if your heart is free from remorse, there's no need to think, may I be um, relaxed and at ease, because when the heart, when there's freedom from remorse, then that leads to a relaxation of body and, and mind. And one who is uh, relaxed, it's not, there's no need for them to think, may I experience delight, pamoja, because that, that, that quality of ease, physical and mental relaxation, leads to delight, pamoja, which is a kind of um, self-respect or kind of comfort in your own skin, and then that leads uh, to joy and to a more profound contentment of, of sukha. And then it goes on to say, one who experiences sukha, that profound contentment, then there's no need to think, may my mind be concentrated, because it's natural for one who's, whose heart is uh, imbued with sukha, with that contentment, for their mind to be easily concentrated. And one whose mind is easily concentrated, there's no need for them to wish, may insight, may knowledge and vision of uh, the way things are arise, because it's natural when that mind is concentrated that insight will arise. And one in whom insight has arisen, there's no need to think, may this lead to detachment and uh, to letting go and to, um, uh, say, to relinquishment, to, um, to dispassion, because when insight arises, then the natural result of that is, to let go, is letting go and dispassion. And the one who experiences dispassion and letting go, uh, coolness of heart, there's no need for them to wish, may knowledge and vision of liberation arise, because it's natural. Um, if there is that letting go, that dispassion, that the, the, the liberation is, is the natural result of that. So, so it's a spelling out in detail, like a ten-stage process, that's why it's in the Book of the Tens, um, how just with uh, establishing our speech and our actions in a, in a, a respectful and a noble, skillful way, that sets the conditions for those other qualities to uh, to arise. Of course, it's not like a an ABC one two three process in everybody's life. <laughs> we uh, we can get distracted and create difficulties along the way, but that that spells out the, how that works with with sila with the, the quality of virtue as the, the basis of the root. So that's sutta number two in the book of the tens. If you're interested to to look that up. So any questions, thoughts, reflections? Yes. I just had a recollection. You know this Songkran bathing. There's a video of Mahaprasanna receiving this. Oh, really? I wonder, have you seen this? I don't know. I haven't. Yeah. And I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> it shows the shoot, and there's mostly it's women who are pouring the water down the <laughs> shoot, and then there's like a um, curtain. 
Yes. Yeah. And then there's like five men literally like Every every bit is being rubbed down, yes. Yeah. Everyone's having great fun, yeah. And I just thought, gosh, for a Westerner to feel comfortable with that, because I think like in Korea we do, you know, there's saunas and people give mm-hmm. each other back scrubs and things like that, but it can freak Westerners out. Yeah, that that's a... Uh, um, it's yeah, very. It's very ordinary in Northeast Thai life. It's, yeah. uh, so it's, it's you know when the uh, when the the, uh, the Ajahn goes to to bathe, then like you know, two or three attendants will go along to help. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like the idea, of, and so getting into a shower by yourself is like, oh my goodness, this is very strange. Also, you know, we'd always bathe with a bathing cloth, and, you, and there was no bathroom. You just have like a big jar of water and a and a brick pad and that's 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 the bath <laughs> the bathing area mm-hmm. so it's a uh, it was particularly challenging in the cold season because it's not heated it's just cold water in the, in the jar so it's uh, but um yeah that that um uh, is very much a kind of group activity or the, mm-hmm. the, the ajahn would naturally be the um so helped by others for their bathing and then the villagers joining in to give you a good scrubbing uh, I don't think I've seen that film but uh, it's in one of the documentaries I, in Portugal Ajahn Pajero was showing us all these uh-huh. old documentaries and uh, it was uh-huh. in one of them and I can't there was one that was called Our Life is Like Our Breath that was done by uh, a German fellow called mm. whose name was Lucky who ironically was very unlucky <laughs> That was his name. Was was lucky, but uh, yeah, it took a long time for that film to come together because of all kinds of things that went wrong. So, it's ironically named Lucky, the ma- the filmmaker. Uh, so it might be in that, but uh, I can't. We watched. We watched many, almost <laughs> like every every documentary that had been made mm-hmm. from Thailand and here. Also, yeah. I can't remember. I'll see yes. if I can track it down. Yes. It's probably on YouTube by now. Yeah. So, okay. yes. I, that's, I just remember the title. I, I don't remember seeing the whole thing, but uh, Our Life is Like Our Breath. Mm-hmm. I remember it started off with a, a leaf hanging from a, a thread of spider web and spinning. Mm. It was, uh, and I just remember the name of the, the filmmaker, Lucky, the German yeah. fellow. But, um, yeah, it took a long, long time for that to get made. I remember that. <laughs> It was uh, in the in the pipeline for a long time. Yes. Ajahn, so you said there's the four calendars, but uh, what do you know? What calendar? Brother, brother would have used the lunar calendar. Would that be right? Yes. Yeah. And but would it, when would their new year? Uh, how would they? If they were literate, a how would they keep track? And b um, when was their new year? Do you know? Well, you watch the moon. You don't need to be able to read anything. So their their New Year would have been uh, the the full moon at the end of the rainy season. Ah, oh, so that would be in the end. So the what's called the um, the Vasa season is each each season is is four months long. Oh. Okay. Uh, usually, and every, um, <coughs> then seven years out of every nineteen, you have a thirteen month year. So next year, th- this year is a thirteen month year. So they they add an extra month in the hot season. So that the the moon keeps up with the sun, oh. it's the same in the Jewish calendar apparently. Seven uh, as, as seven years every nineteen, you have an extra month. 
so that uh, what what happens is that so every every two or three uh, years uh, then you have an extra month and so then the um the 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 date of the anyway I won't go into <laughs> calendrical details but uh, it's how people have figured out to to keep uh, uh, keep tr- track of the number of of, uh, of moons going by, so that the uh, and the extra month in the Buddhist calendar is always added into the hot season. So uh, that uh, so we're now at uh, the end of the towards the end of the cold season. Hemantotu and Gimhotu, the hot season, is about to begin, and Vasanotu is the rainy season. So the, that begins. The rainy season begins usually in July. This year it'll begin on the 2nd of August because it's an extra month. But each year the full moons are about 10 days, 10 or 11 days earlier. It sort of progresses backwards. And so you said there was a, a cold You can follow that, that's very confusing. Yeah. You said there's three, so there's three seasons of four months, a cold season, hot season and rainy season. Correct, yes. Yeah. And then uh, in Hindu times, with Buddha being scrubbed and washed and all that, like, or do you do that I have no recollection. <laughs> um, it's said that the, 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 the Buddha's skin was such that dust and dirt never uh, accrued to his, his skin, never accumulated. That uh, He had that kind of a naturally self-cleansing uh, skin. So... Uh, I, I'm not sure, quite sure how that would that would work. There aren't, there's, but it's interesting that there's no mention of the Buddha bathing anywhere in the Pali, Pali Canon, or of shaving his head. And that also, it's another thing about the the Buddha was. It was said that when he cut his hair off as a prince, then his his hair then it was it was straight, and then it formed into small curls, and then it, uh, according to tradition. Then rather like our eyebrows, which you know we shave our eyebrows off and they grow back, but ordinary humans don't shave their eyebrows, <laughs> and the eyebrows stay pretty much the same length the whole time. So that it's said that the Buddha's hair just stayed the same length all the time. It sort of formed into these small curls, and so he never, he never had to shave his head. His hair just stayed at that same length. Whether that's actually the case, I cannot say, but but rather like eyebrows managed to to look after their own length, then uh, that was how it was referred uh, referred to. But the you know, different customs grow up in different countries, and as I said, it's the one festival that's based around the, the sun, the solar year, rather than the moon. All the other Buddhist festivals in the southern Buddhist world, it's the full moon of, of February as Maga Puja, the full moon of, of Visakha, uh, of May as Visakha Puja, and then the full moon of July, is Asala Puja. So the uh, Maga Puja in February was when there was a spontaneous gathering of 1,250 arahants uh, in the in the, the bamboo grove. Um, so Maga Puja is like the Sangha day, and then Visakha Puja is the day of the birth, the the Buddha's birth, enlightenment, and parinibbana. So that's the Buddha day, and then the full moon of July is the 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 time when he gave the first teaching, the Dhammachaka, Pawatana Sutta, the first turning of the wheel. And so those are the three main festivals, they're all on lunar days. And then the Katina festival at the end of the rains retreat, 
then that can be on any day in that month from the full moon of October to the full moon of, of November. This is probably more calendar details than most people need, but it's, it's, it's how it all works. And so that the uh, yeah, so traditionally the dating of the year is marked at the end of that rainy season, at the end of well, the, the end of the Katina month. And so twenty five, and, and in Thailand it's went from twenty five sixty five to twenty five sixty six. Sri Lanka it's one year later, so it went, it's now twenty five sixty seven in the Sinhalese calendar. So how they've got one year adrift from each other? Yes, indeed, exactly. Who knows? <laughs> But, uh, I can always remember the Buddhist year because it's the same as my age. So I'm 66. I was born at the end of 2499. So I'm you, most of the year I'm the same age as the Buddhist year, the Thai Buddhist year. So I'm 66 and it's 2566. So I can keep track of the the Buddhist year fairly easily. Yes. You know, I'm just thinking. You, you mentioned about the Buddha's hair not growing. Mm-hmm. I thought we'd have ruled in the Vinaya that. Every so often, you have to shave your head, whether it's whether it's mm-hmm. settling for not. Did the Buddha follow the Vinaya? Uh, well, the, it's if it's less if your hair is less than two finger breadths, then you don't have to shave it. Don't you? Or your, or your beard, yeah. Oh, okay. I thought it was the other way round. I thought you could wait a certain length of time, but whether it's more. If it gets more than two, you have to shave it. Yeah. Or a certain amount of time, you have to shave it. It's not. It's not to, to do with time. It's the two two finger breadths. And so, if his hair never grew beyond two finger breadths, then he didn't have to shave it. So the Buddha, generally speaking, followed the Vinaya, the same as other people. But um, you know, he was also the founder, so he kind of made the rules. <laughs> <laughs> a certain latitude. But, so he could still give ordination by Ehi Bhikkhu when the rest of the Sangha had to have a whole procedure. Oh. And uh, the, he could just say, Ehi, you know, like a one-word, two-word ordination, and then it's, okay, you're, you're good to go. But everyone else had to go through the whole complex procedure by the, the latter years of his life. So, yeah, the, the, the um, connection with the goddess Saraswati uh, you find that um, also that drifts into Thai culture as well, even though it's an Indian tradition. So you get sometimes you get uh, um, images or shrines to, to Saraswati. Uh, I'm not sure what the Thai rendering of, of her name would be, but uh, that's sort of as the kind of fertility goddess that was uh, that was the, the water, it, the sort of spreading of water or the sprinkling of water in the middle of the dry season was part of the sort of puja to the, the goddess Saraswati, who also the river Saraswati was, was associated with her as well. Anyway, not to get too drawn into calendars and mythology. <coughs> so to continue. When I was a child, on this day, the village elders would lead us together to other districts for what was called communing over water. We would drink from the same water, make vows over the same water, proclaiming our intention to be honest and straightforward towards each other. For example, in this district, in this township, in this province, we would say, quote, although we live in different villages and have different concerns, let us have a common outlook for the purpose of bringing happiness to everyone. 
that has all lived firmly established in virtue and spirituality. We would vow in this way to establish truthfulness in order to have integrity in our dealings with our superiors toward the village, the nation, religion and royalty. It was in order to instill respect and caution, to be aware, to be modest and humble towards each other. Then our villages and our nation will be able to live in peace and happiness because of siladharma, noble behaviour by way of body, speech and mind. In this way there could be harmony. If we are without honesty and integrity, well, just look at the way things are all around us these days. If you take a look, you'll probably be able to see. Within one village, people quarrel with each other, children of the same parents dispute with each other, citizens of the same country are fighting with each other. It's because of delusion. I'm not pointing the finger at anyone. It's only because of our delusion that this happens. Those who are, in actuality, brothers and sisters, are quarrelling and fighting and killing each other, all to no purpose. Why is this? Because of wrong understanding. People who don't understand correctly do not think about the meaning of virtue and spirituality. Also, um, this um, uh, communing over water and then they drinking from the same sort of water vessel, it was a kind of ritual act that people would all uh, uh, share that water together um, and that... Uh, and make this sort of communal vow. So it was a kind of um, New Year's resolution that would be made as a, as a community. And so I, I don't know if those customs still carry on in, uh, in uh, Thailand, or Northeast Thailand in particular. Uh, I get the feeling that a lot, lot of that has waned uh, over the years and that those things have fallen by the, the, the roadside. But um, uh, that was certainly a, a big feature of of uh, life in Lumpuchar's day and that the uh, the the region the northeast thailand uh, life is, is is very very hard there and so one of the reasons why people so can uh, understand why such a such a strong religious sense there in the northeast is because the soil is extremely poor it's like it's like gray dust it's got almost no vitality in it uh, there's uh, and the, the seasons are quite harsh. The hot season is very hot, the rainy season is very wet, the cold season is very cold. So basically to survive, you had to work as a team. The village had to come together. If you were just looking out for yourself, uh, you, you, know, you really wouldn't make it. So that, that sense, a communal spirit was very, is very, very strong there. Basically for, out of survival as well as you know, spiritual devotion, but they really had to look out for each other. And so there was a very, very strong sense of, of um, community spirit in that part of the, of the world. And I remember early on being told how in the, in the local village life, village comes first, family comes second, and, and the individual comes third. <laughs> it's like that's the kind of uh, the mentality that's encouraged and, and sort of inculcated in children growing up and what was sort of praised and encouraged in the community. Also, just as a, as a little bit of an aside, with um, communing over water, they also uh, and uh, say, let us all live firmly established in virtue and spirituality and um, being honest and straightforward towards each other. They have a test for lying which is to, they have a, um, uh, if someone is making an accusation about somebody else, it was a kind of local court system, was that uh, 
you would have to to drink from just water from a, from a vessel in front of everybody, and the belief was that if you were lying, then you wouldn't be able to swallow, and that uh, you uh, if you're telling the truth, then you'll be able to drink. If you if you're not telling the truth, then your your body won't be able to accept the, the water, and um, and that that still carried on into our era because there was. Um, in the very, very early days of, of what Pananachat, there were some uh, local people who were uh, very unhappy about the Westerners moving into that forest and setting up a monastery there, and they were quite uh, jealous and, and uh, upset about it. They made all sorts of accusations about uh, Ajahn Sumedho and the Sangha there behaving very, very badly and leaving some messages sort of uh, 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 at the, the little bus stop outside the, you know, on the main road and accusing the, the monks of various uh, wrongdoings. And it became a whole local ruckus, <laughs> a whole big thing. So they, they convened one of these local courts and, they, uh, and then they, they kind of um, deduced or it was clear who were, were making the accusations against the, the Sangha and uh, I wasn't there. This was before my time. I was um, I just I arrived a couple of years later. But uh, as I understand it, the person who was the main accuser refused to to take the drink. I said I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do it because they were that because of that that that, that kind of ritual that they were afraid that uh, I'm gonna choke and and, and uh, so that has happened. That sort of survived into the at least into the mid 70s. That kind of. Um, local customs but uh, they probably have the court proceedings in Ubon nowadays <laughs> in the in the city but uh, those kind of customs uh, and also involving water were, and, and honesty were still surviving the um, one of the interesting things about the causes of conflict um, the uh, <coughs> when uh, when the Buddha was meditating in the forest um, one time uh, a Brahmin who was a, um, a, a kind of professional debater and uh, philosopher called Dandapani um, had, had, had heard of the Buddha's reputation and was wa- he was wandering through the forest and saw the Buddha sitting under a tree and thought, oh, it's that, that wanderer Gotama and uh, he's, he's got a good reputation. Uh, you know, I'll, uh, I'll challenge him and I'll demonstrate my great skill in, uh, as, a, as a, a spiritual teacher and philosopher and I'll show him up. Um, uh, you know, I'll get him to express his teaching, his philosophy, and then I'll pick it apart and and um, show him how wrong he is. And so he goes up to the Buddha and sort of stands in front of him, and, and the Buddha you know, opens his eyes and and, they, and greets him. And then the Dandapani says to the Buddha, "So, what is it that you practice? What is it that you teach? What is the philosophy that you adhere to?" And the Buddha, who was extremely good at re- reading situations and uh, and uh, seeing where people are at, said, um, I espouse such a, a teaching and practice that um, uh, involves non-contention with anyone in the world. <laughs> Over to you, sir. And so that, uh, and then that, as it, uh, so the, the sutta kind of makes fun of, of the, the Brahmin as, as in this kind of mythic defamation type way. And so it's said that he, his forehead puckered into three lines and clicking his tongue, having nothing to say, he stomped off and, and uh, uh, had no means of responding to the Buddha. So then the Buddha went back to the monastery and recounted 
uh, sort of talked a little bit about that incident and said, yeah, it's because of attachment to perceptions. This is why we, we engage in arguments, we pick up weapons, we, we fight with each other. And then, and then left the, the Sangha and, uh, and went off to spend time by himself in his kuti. And so then they went to go and visit Mahakachana because Mahakachana was the one who was, uh, he had the title of the one who was most gifted ex- explaining in detail the Buddha's uh, reference uh, teachings uh, made in brief. And so they, what did he mean by that? How, you know, what's attachment to perceptions is the cause of conflict? And so they went to Mahakachana and then Mahakachana spelled out what is called the uh, the the Madhupindika Sutta, the, the, the sweet morsel or the, the honeyball discourse. And so it was Mahakachana who described this. He said, well, what, he, uh, what the, the master meant was that when we perceive something, when the eye perceives form, as visual form, there's the, there's the eye, and there's, uh, when the visual forms are perceived by the eye, then eye consciousness arises. The, the, the coming together of those three is contact, pasat. When, the, uh, when, there's, um, when there's sense contact, then it gives rise to feeling, to Vedana. That feeling then conditions perception, sanya. That sanya then, perce- then conditions vitaka, thinking. And then vitaka, that thinking, conditions conceptual proliferation, papancha. And then the papancha, conceptual proliferation, leads to papancha sanya sankar, the, the, the great, the, the large array of. Um, uh, thoughts and feelings that that beset the heart and uh, and bring you know, agitation and conflict, and so then um, then the, uh, afterwards, and the the um, this was related. Uh, Venerable Ananda went to the Buddha and said, "Well, this is how um, uh, Mahakachana explained your your brief utterance." And the Buddha said, "That's exactly how I would have uh, spelled it out myself." So Mahakachana has done a great job there. And then Ananda says, in Ananda's usually uh, his uh, his usual to slightly overexcited way. This is amazing. This is a wonderful teaching. This is delicious. It's beautiful. It's it's like a sweet morsel. Um, it's like a, a ball of honey. So what should we call the sutta, venerable sir? He said, Well, we'll call it the honey ball sutta. So it's called the madu. Madu is honey, and pinda is a little ball. So it's been called the madu pindika, the the, the honey ball sutta ever since. So that's where conflict comes from, is attachment to perceptions. And the, the more there is nipapancha, non-proliferation, non-complication, then the less conflict there is. So one of the, the, the epithets that the Buddha had was nipapancha, one who is uncomplicated or free of, uh, of uh, proliferation, free of, of complexity. So any questions, thoughts before... That's uh, the sutta number eighteen in the middle length discourses. The, the honey balls. It's a a very good explanation and commentary on that is in uh, Bhikkhu Nyanananda's book Concept and Reality. He goes into great detail and explains it. A, a very a very wise and, and um, erudite Sri Lankan monk, um, Venerable uh, Nyanananda. Uh, Concept and Reality uh, goes into the Madhupindika Sutta in great de- great detail. Very briefly, Arjun, is that connected to dependent origination? Um, the, the the chain, or is that am I getting it wrong? Um, well, to an extent, yes, and uh, but not not the same. You don't have sanya in the the, the word isn't exactly the same, 
but you can see a relatedness between those two. Basically, you start off with the simplicity of experience, and then you end up with dukkha and conflict. <laughs> so it kind of is basically the same trajectory, but spelled out in a slightly different fashion. Yes. About cutting the hair, are there <laughs> uh, many reasons about this? About why we shave our heads yeah. at all? Um, well, the Buddha was very practical, and it was, um, I think, just a, a sign of renunciation, uh, and that um, the uh, um, the regularity with which that should be done. Um, he uh, recognizing well, it's just it keeps a simple standard. You, you don't have to think about uh, in terms of renunciation. It also is uh, helping to um, uh, not uh, to help helping the mind not to be concerned too much about appearance. So whether you've got thin hair or thick hair or lots of hair or no hair, uh, <laughs> you say, "What am I going to do with my hair now?" It's like, well, <laughs> I haven't had to think about my hair for forty years, you know. <laughs> I used to think about it quite a lot, <laughs> but uh, don't have to think about it. And so then, just as a standard for how often you, uh, you it would be appropriate to to, to shave it, um, then it's not fixed. But it's uh, but if it's uh, it shouldn't be any longer than two finger breadths. So you can have a beard, actually. I, you know, technically speaking, the, the the males could could grow beards as long as they're not. More than two finger breadths. So if you see if you see um, photographs of Venerable Nyana Tiloka in Sri Lanka, he had a short beard at the, when he was in his old age. He looks he looks like Socrates. <laughs> <laughs> because in um, Orthodox Christianity, the monks also have this idea to don't care about let the hair to grow mm-hmm. and don't care about this. Mm-hmm. It's the same. Uh, yeah, same principle. Yes, yeah, let it grow principle. completely and uh, <laughs> or, or cut it all off. Yeah, it's basically the the, the the same kind of principle. It's much easier to look after it if you just shave it all off the whole time. But, uh, I used to have sort of thick, shaggy hair, so it was always difficult to keep clean and definitely not tidy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, well, good question. Uh, there's a little booklet on the shelf there called "I'm Right, You're Wrong," yeah, which has a few sort of uh, themes about meta uh, meta practice generally, but also is focusing on that the habit of finding fault and conflicting with, with others and how to work with that. Yeah, I notice in my own self, I look at the, uh, the, the feelings in my body, where is it coming from, and am I just getting into conflict? Yeah, yeah the, uh, the, um, that's all, in terms of any kind of emotional reactivity, developing the uh, body awareness is, uh, is, a, is almost invariably a helpful thing. And so that noticing what uh, is, is happening in the body and just bringing attention to the fact, oh, my shoulders are up around my ears, or <laughs> my my teeth are clenched, or my my belly is is a tight drum. Then just awareness of those tensions and agitations in the body that 
often just the awareness of it helps to to the the whole system to relax and for things to balance out. So it is very very helpful. Um, the uh, um, also nipa pancha, I mean that sense of not creating people and not carrying people around. So often the cause of conflict is if I, if I had had an argument with you three days ago and then I'm just thinking, well, how did she say that? She's always like that. I'm just making this up. <laughs> She's always like that. Why does she do that? And I'm kind of ruminating and cre- I'm creating you. And so then uh, carrying you around. And so then when I actually see you, I don't see you. I just see my my creations uh, mental projections and, and assumptions and so um that, i mean not not a hundred percent but that's uh, you know highly influential in the way that we we uh, we meet each other and so when you are carrying people creating people and carrying people around either praising them and loving them or criticizing and complaining about them then then we are uh, are in a sense not actually meeting anybody <laughs> we're not communing uh, because what we're meeting is our projections and our, our mental creations about that person and so that when there's you're actually talking you're, you're kind of talking to your projection <laughs> and you can be you know easily just sort of and if the other person's doing the same thing you've got two monologues going just sort of talking past each other and the, the more that we can not create uh, another person and recognize, well, that was, that was an awkward exchange. Um, okay, well, how does that feel? And then, well, that, that, was, that was what it was. What's, what's to learn from that? And let, basically learning from it and letting it go. Then when we meet up again, then it's like, oh, it's her again. And hello, how are you today? you're able to meet from a more fresh place. And even if the other person is sort of, what is he saying that for? You know, it's got kind of no place to land because I'm, uh, the, you're, if you're not carrying anything around, then even if someone else is a bit sort of wary and tense and uh, experiencing the, 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 uh, the resonances of, of past conflict, they're not the, the body language that they're, they're witnessing or the, the kind of tone of your voice, whatever, your expression on your face is all saying, oh, there's no grudge there. There's the, this all seems a lot more, oh, I, oh, this is all right. <laughs> I can relax. <laughs> I don't have to do anything with this. <sighs> so that, um, uh, that, I mean, it takes a lot of mindfulness and, and effort to not create people and carry them around because we very easily do that. But just to, to see the habit of the mind worrying or uh, obsessing um, uh, positively or negatively, just to notice that and then to be working to let that go so that when you do actually meet with others I mean, in the work, for the workplace and the family or wherever, then there's a freshness to the encounter. Was that Pali word for creating people used? The Pali word for creating people in your minds? Did you use a Pali word? I didn't use a Pali word, I just said creating people. Oh, okay. Yes. Hi. Um, the switch of practice, um, I personally find it um, getting, having the feeling good and then carry on putting a workplace very 
that is the issue on this change uh, individual pers perspective looking things differently but however um, uh, because I come more often to this environment and have a good um, speech or community to support and uh, sometimes I find it um, a bit edited to <laughs> a bit what? edited edited <laughs> this kind of feeling good of Dharma, learning Dharma and uh -huh. this and I find it I can't stop it let, let it go and terms of <laughs> listening to talk or downloading you know ebook to read I just wonder um, what's our chance and why is coming to this point um, well, I would say in the in the in the realm of addictions that's a kind of a useful addiction to have <laughs> it, it's a more skillful way to look at it when um, you know it's just a personal uh, experience. Yeah, well, I think with with, with um, any kind of uh, um, compulsiveness, even with some compulsiveness in relationship to Dhamma, can have a negative side effect as well. Uh, but just um, looking at the the way that the mind relates or the, the, what, the, what you can think of as partiality like I don't want to bother with the work I don't want to bother with the thing I want to get to the monastery because that's that's where everything good is there and all this other stuff is really worthless and so the mind is creating uh, a bias and a negativity towards life outside the monastery and it's kind of inflating the, the monastery or the Dhamma teachings and so it's creating the causes for for conflict and, and, and division. So um, so that would be in a sense grasping the Dhamma as a, uh, a as an idea, and any kind of grasping is going to bring uh, painfulness. So diligence, be, you know, being very very focused or seeing the value in Dhamma teachings or coming and spending time here, it's like yes, this is valuable and yes, this is delightful, but um, don't let's not make that a cause for aversion or, or um, uh, say uh, uh, negativity and division with respect to things that are not dhamma teachings or not uh, involved with with this environment. Um, like the the when the Buddha gave the the um, the the simile of the raft, he says that the this shore is so sort of dangerous and difficult, and so. Um, and then there's the, the the great sort of river, and on the other side of the the great river, then there's the safe the shore, which is safe and secure. And so to get from the dangerous shore to the safe shore, then he says uh, that if you're uh, if you're wise, you'll gather together sticks and vines and and put it all together and make a raft. And then once the raft is is established, then you can paddle over. The, the the great river to get to the the the, the shore on the other side. So the Dhamma is like a raft. So what enables to get from the dangerous place to the to the safe place. But once you've arrived at the safe place, there's no need to carry. Is it suitable to carry the raft around on your shoulder, saying, "This helped me so much. This enabled me to get to this the safe shore, the secu the place of security. Therefore, I'll carry it around with me wherever I go." He says, "No, that's not." That's not uh, relating to the Dhamma in a skillful way, um, and so it's uh, the appropriate thing to do is once the the mind's arrived at the safe shore, is to put the, the put the raft down and go on your way, 
And so he said, so um, uh, even wholesome things should not be attached to, and how much more so unwholesome things. So and that's a, a classical image of how like you're grasping the Dhamma and holding on to it and, and then you make it into a burden, a thing you've got to carry around and, and you use it as a, a weapon to attack other people with. Ah, oh, this person, they, they, they've got no Dhamma in their life. They're, they're not, you know, I'm, I'm really focused on spiritual practice and these fools, these idiots, they, they don't know what they're doing. You're kind of creating a lot of tension and negativity and division within yourself. So um, that... Uh, I would say the skillful grasping of Dhamma then, or skillful holding of the Dhamma is you're using the teachings, recognizing they benefit uh, your own life, but you're not using them, uh, as a Lumpucha would say, it's like a, a club with metta written on it. Like, you know, kind of using the Dhamma as a weapon to attack other people with. And, but rather, you recognize it's beneficial for yourself and, and that it brings blessings, but you... Uh, you're not carrying it around or, or attaching to it and making it um, something that is uh, sort of a, a cause for stress and and, and uh, division between yourself and others. Does that make sense? Yeah, sometimes the f- teaching is very inspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, it make you feel good for days. You just mm-hmm. look at it, try to understand. You see the you have some, you've got some inside. Yes. You can't just let go. <laughs> well, you can. <laughs> well, that, again, if you, the many, many of Lumpur Chah's teachings are about don't attach to goodness. You know, just because something is good, you know, if, you, if you attach, if there's grasping at goodness, it, it becomes badness. Yeah. But, uh, it's like taking hold of the tail of the snake. Very quickly it whips around. If you, you just pick a, a snake up by the, the end of its tail it'll just whip around and bite you anyway so many many times he talks about not attaching to goodness or or, or happiness but talking about that which is beyond uh, good and bad yeah that is you know, the, the dhamma is not about any kind of attachment okay so to continue a little bit So our Supreme Teacher established what is called the Buddhist religion. It can be called Buddhist science, in the Thai language, Vityasar, which is a, a body of knowledge superior to all other disciplines. Uh, though, uh, those subjects we study in the world, even when studied to the doctoral level, are disciplines with no end to learning. They are disciplines that have limits, which exist in the realm of desire and attachment, and which lead to suffering. They do not help us to let go of suffering. The kind of knowledge, sorry, this kind of knowledge is called science, but it's not the same as Buddhist science. In Buddhist study, if we've learned properly, we learn to let go, to put down, stop. If there is harm in something, we learn to see the harm. Instead of holding tightly to things, we learn how to loosen our grip and let go. We learn about giving up. This is Buddhist science. Well, it's a um, yeah, interesting take uh, of uh, Lumpur Cha on that. So the 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 word science um, comes from the Latin skiere, which means to, to know or to to study. To, uh, 
and so that uh, that kind of uh, implies that quality of exploration, and so that uh, and recognizing in in the world at large, you know, science is, uh, holds a very particular sort of prominent place in in the, in the uh, academic realm, but. Um, Buddhist science, he says, is completely focused on this one process of uh, of ending dukkha. That's the that's the uh, the the point of it, and it, and it has an end. It, it leads to the end point of of uh, the realization of nibbana and the the the, the end point of spiritual fulfillment. Other uh, other disciplines, uh, the you know, and I think anyone who's involved in the scientific realm will had a a career in academia will know that uh, there's no limit to <laughs> what can be learned or, or studied. I remember years and years ago, I was on a, a leading a retreat in, uh, I think it was in Washington State in in uh, in America, and this fellow was on the retreat, and he was uh, a researcher into uh, a, p- a particular lung disease. He was like a medical uh, a medical researcher, and. Um, and he uh, and he said that uh, he, like his field is this one particular lung disease, and he said it's not possible to read all the literature that's published, even on my one tiny little discipline. It's, there are not enough hours in the day to read everything that's just about this one illness, and then that <laughs> every other thing that can uh, can be can be studied. That uh, and I remember him th- this. I uh, said so. It, uh, so what what do you, what do you do in uh, in relationship to that? You know how do you, how do you feel about that? And you can see this this sort of look of horror on his face, saying, "It's an abyss, <laughs> <laughs> trying to trying to keep up with it." And it's like, oh my goodness, it's just this uh, this abyss of knowledge. You, no matter how hard you try, you can't get your mind around the whole thing. It's just, I remember that. Uh, an abyss, like a gigantic crevasse, a kind of a bottomless uh, uh, cavern. That I thought, oh, he's saying that with great feeling. <laughs> so, struggling to try and keep up and be relevant in his his field, and uh, so that 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 kind of endlessness of worldly knowledge. But the Buddhist science, Buddhist knowledge, is it's uh, somewhat different in that it does have a there is an end point uh, of uh, of liberation. That's the there, there is finality. It's also interestingly when uh, Don Pochao was asked why he never spoke about politics, and he said, uh, "Politics has no end. I only talk about things that have an ending. <laughs> so therefore, I don't talk about politics." <laughs> Very brief comment. <laughs> so the the political field wrapped up in one in one little nugget. The teachings of the Buddha are a body of knowledge that is true and correct in all ways. They had to be taught because these things do not come naturally for us. This knowledge does not change into some other set of concepts, but its validity remains the same. For example, the Buddha taught that doing good brings good results. Doing evil brings evil results. This is a fixed law. It is certain. It's knowledge that comes from pure wisdom that is certain and reliable. Thus it can be called truth. Still, there are those who say that doing good is not certain to bring good results. They may have practiced virtue, but not seen any good come from it. I practiced virtue, I kept the sila, so why can't I see any benefit? 
We can see plenty of people doing bad things and getting good results. Plenty of people doing good yet still experiencing suffering. This is true, but only in the way of wrong understanding, insofar as it, as it is wrong view. So I thought I would just uh, briefly share, uh, and I was mentioning it the other day, the greater discourse on the exposition of Kama, the Maha Kama Vibhanga Sutta, which is Sutta number 135, 136, excuse me, in the Middle Length Discourses. So the um, Sutta 135, the Chula, the Lesser Discourse, it sort of pegs out, you know, if you are, if you kill, if you kill a lot of living beings, that'll be the cause for having a short lifespan. If you're stingy, it'll have a, be the cause for you uh, not being very attractive in a future lifetime, and so on. So very much, here's the cause, here's the effect. And the next sutta, uh, the greater discourse, talks about how some, how quite often, or sometimes, um, there is a disconnect between what seems to be being done and what the results seem to be. Ananda, there are four kinds of persons to be found existing in the world. What for? Here some person kills living beings, takes what is not given, misconducts himself in sensual pleasures, speaks falsehood, speaks maliciously, speaks harshly, gossips. He is covetous, has a mind of ill will, and holds wrong view. After, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state of deprivation, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. But... Here some person kills living beings, etc., holds wrong view. On the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination, even in the heavenly world. Here some person abstains from killing living beings, from taking what's not given and so forth, uh, from harsh and, and malicious speech, as without ill will holds right view. On the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination, even in the heavenly world. But here some person abstains from killing living beings, etc., holds right view, and on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state of deprivation, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. So those are the four kinds of, <laughs> of beings. And then uh, the, he goes on to explain... Um, the um, So here... Uh, uh, they're in and under as to the person who kills living beings and holds wrong view on the dissolution of the body after death reappears in a state of deprivation either he did an, uh, earlier did an evil action to be felt as painful or later he did an evil action to be felt as painful uh, or at the time of death he acquired and undertook wrong view because of that on the dissolution of the body after death he's reappeared in a state of deprivation um, and the person who um, kills living beings and holds wrong view etc after death, reappears in a happy destination, even in the heavenly world, either earlier he did a good action to be felt as pleasant, or later he did a good action to be felt as pleasant, or at the time of death he acquired and undertook right view. Because of that, on the dissolution of the body after death, he's reappeared in a happy destination. And so forth, and so on with the same, with the, the skillful person, one who abstains from killing living beings, holds right view, etc., on the dissolution of the body, he reappears in a happy destination. Either he did a good action in, uh, felt, uh, or, uh, in the past, or he did a good action to be felt as pleasant. Or at the time of death, he acquired and undertook right view. And then, as to the person who abstains from killing living beings, holds right view, um, 
on the dissolution of the body after death, reappears in a state of deprivation even in hell. Either earlier he did an evil, evil action to be felt as painful, or later he did an evil action to be felt as painful, but at the time of death he acquired and undertook wrong view. Because of that, on the dissolution of the body after death, he has reappeared in a state of deprivation even in hell. And so that's, there, there is a, a, it's a moral universe. Things have their matching consequences, but exactly how and where they, they will ripen, that's something that can't be pinned down. And the um, one of the four imponderables, the achinteya, is all of the workings of karma. So that, uh, And I feel it's, it's very deliberate, as I was saying the other day. Those two suttas are side by side. Like you have the action and its results sort of matching each other. Like in a, uh, and um, uh, and then next to it is yeah, but you can't say exactly <laughs> how and where and, and when it's going to ripen and in, in what form, and so that uh, that um, I feel is is a, a very good editing <laughs> and putting those together because they uh, the uh, both of those principles apply and uh, and uh, I think it helps us to get a a sense of yes, there's a relatedness. But exactly how things ripen and in what way, shape, and form, it's not predictable. It's not; it can't be pinned down. So, I see um, the clock has gone past seven o'clock already. So let's leave it there for today. <laughs>